It's our hundredth episode. Ooh. Say it again. Say it again. It's our official 100th episode. That is wild. We have officially recorded 100 of our regular episodes, not counting our bonus episodes. Yeah, but like our- 150 million other things. Like I just, <laughs> I'm just hemorrhaging content over here. Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real-life creeps, from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mo Gap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. But here's the thing. I have had plans for what I wanted to do for our 100th episode ever since we dropped our very first episode on the Richard Glossop case. And as many people might be aware, that was the episode that Mogab, who had a nice microphone sitting in no. front of her, accidentally recorded the whole episode through her AirPods mic. It was episode one. And for nostalgic purposes, I will be doing the same for this one. You are welcome. <laughs> Well, can we just talk about the last 30 minutes of massive technical issues that we have had? (laughs) Really brought me back. Yeah, it's 2020. (laughs) Shouts to my IT guy, RPW. (laughs) Yeah, she just sends me a Marco Polo of her laptop shutting down. (laughs) Anyways, the Richard Glossop episode was our very first episode. We had a lot of learning to do. And from that moment on, I said, you know... That first of all, that case was very important to me. I was like, of all the cases to like mess up on that one. But mm. I knew when we got to 100, I wanted to redo that case. And so that's what we're doing today. And I'm actually so excited about it because so much has happened with this case since we dropped that episode. I cannot wait to get all into it. Ooh, okay. Am I going to learn new information? Yes, you are going to learn. There's like new information. Oh there's gosh. like, yes, there's stuff I didn't know before. So, but I went back and listened to it, you know, for old time's sake. And it's so funny how nervous I was to like commit to any, like, I did not want to say anything on it. And now, and now <laughs> I'm letting her rip. I just am like, but I mean, I was so like, nope, nope, not going to have a hot take here. And now I'm like, you know what? macaroni is trash i'll say it you know like i just whatever whatever hot take i'm just used to people coming for me now did we talk about macaroni i know we talked about waterbeds oh no not macaroni in that case i was just this weekend Um, we did a little icebreaker thing about like what's your like what's your most controversial food take and you know mine is that chocolate uh chip cookies or a second rate cookie Uh uh-huh but my second one is that macaroni and cheese is trash so what's your go-to cookie? Oatmeal raisin. Oh, I'm wow. Okay, so you're wrong. Oh, okay. Okay. So <laughs> yeah. you're just totally wrong. Chocolate chip I mean, I get it. I get it. <laughs> no, I know. I know oatmeal raisin is not going to be most people's number one. I get that. But I, I truly believe people that just go so hard for chocolate chip cookies are more like brainwashed than anything to think like, yeah, chocolate. Like there are so many other options than just chocolate chip. Now. I do respect a slightly warm chocolate chip cookie with sea salt sprinkled on top. That I can vibe with, but that's Mm -hmm. still like a solid number four. It's not your number one cookie. 
No, yeah. Chocolate chip is not my number one, but I think it's like, I, I wouldn't call it second, right? I think it's a solid choice. I think it's a solid choice, but yeah. What's your number one cookie? Mine is sugar cookies. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But I also really love like, a peanut butter cookie, a sugar cookie, Snickerdoodle. and a um, I was gonna say, and a Snickerdoodle. Those are yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Well, now that you now that we've covered cookie talk, and right. everyone at episode one hundred is unsubscribing now. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Let's get into it. You're right. Just kidding. If you want more cookie talk, <laughs> go visit us on our Patreon. Oh yeah, we have a Patreon. Oh my gosh, and. We would love for you to check it out if you want more content. I promise we won't talk your ear off about cookies all the time. But Waffle House, though. Yeah. Well, we do have an entire episode over on the Patreon about crimes that happened at a Waffle House. So if that's interesting to you, head on over there. We've got three levels. We've got a $5 level that gets you a bonus episode every single month. It's going to come out. We got a full length bonus episode. You also get a shout out on the podcast. If you bump up to the $7 level, you get all of that plus mini creeps, like two to three mini creeps a month, which are shorter episodes most of the times. So they Some of them are a little longer, but they're just on lots of different stuff. Sometimes they're on a true crime. Sometimes they're like Reddit stuff. We just posted a Let's Not Meet episode of some creepy stories for Halloween. Sometimes I go off about my mama. Sometimes MoGab does an entire episode about... The wild, ridiculous stories of <laughs> Louise. And then we've got one more level up at the $10 level. That will get you all of that, plus a discount on merch and ad-free episodes. And I usually put them up there the night before. I don't guarantee day early, but you usually do get it a little early. So all of that's over on patreon.com slash Creepers if you want to go check it out. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. <laughs> That's a throwback. All right. What was that from, though? Did the we Scott hear that Peterson somewhere? episode. <laughs> no, I know, but where did we get that? I, I, I said, all right, let's somewhere. get into it. And you said, let's get <laughs> into it. <laughs> I know, but I just, I was like, did I, did I hear that somewhere? Um, I don't know. Now you got me thinking. I know. I hope it's not copyrighted. Sorry. <laughs> Big thanks to the documentary Killing Richard Glossop, as well as the independent investigation of State v. Richard E. Glossop that was conducted by the Reed Smith Law Firm in June of 2022. Today, we're talking about the murder of Barry Van Treese and the case against Richard Glossop. I feel like I've heard this before. Mm, you have our numero uno episode and we are redoing it. I talked in that episode about how this is a case that I have been following for at the time it was like six or seven years. Now it's like eight or nine years <laughs> that I've been following this case of Richard Glossop, who has been on death row for like 23 years, I think at this point, That's for a so crime crazy. that he did not commit. And so he has had four execution dates as of now and made it through each one of them for one reason or another still alive and we need to get him off of there so that's another big reason I'm doing this case again just more eyeballs especially now things are moving things are happening things are shaken up with this case so we know it can happen too. Adnan remember at every episode you'd be like and Adnan's in jail everybody what are you gonna say now and Richard Glossop I know Oh, my God. Can we make that happen for Richard Glossop? Oh, okay. Oh, that made me emotional. All right. 
You used to say that every episode. <laughs> I know. You're right. I know. When these ding-dongs would be getting off for these horrible things and, like, not having to serve the jail time that they should have. And, yeah. All right. Barry Van Treese was 54 years old. He was the father of seven kids and from Lawton, Oklahoma. Two of his kids were from a prior marriage and five were with his second and current wife, Donna. He had spent most of his life in banking and he had a master's degree in banking and finance from Southern Methodist University. Oh, dang. I don't, I don't think I knew that. No, you did not because I did not know that. <laughs> But after 20 years as a banker, he decided to invest in three rundown motels that he called the best budget in. There was one in Oklahoma City, one in Tulsa, and one in Weatherford, Oklahoma. Were they attached to a Waffle House? <laughs> no, no. But these were not fancy places. There was lots of drug activity, sex work, shady stuff going on there. To really paint the picture for you, the Oklahoma City location shared a parking lot with a strip club. Oh, okay. Yes. So on the night of January 6th, 1997, Barry stopped by the Oklahoma City Motel at 6 p.m. to take care of some things that he needed to do. He was generally pretty hands-off as an owner. He would usually only stop by a few times a month to check on the properties and pay the staff. He really left it up to his staff to run the day-to-day -day operations. I love that in a boss. <laughs> Same. He was there for a couple of hours, and he, apparently he had about $3,000 in cash that the manager of the motel had given him when he closed down the drawers that night at the motel. It was a mostly cash business, if you couldn't have guessed. I could. <laughs> Around 8 p.m., Barry leaves the motel and stashes the receipt money under the front seat of his car. Now, it was pretty well known that Barry kept a lot of cash on him and in his car, and this was because he was under a ton of financial pressure. In 1993, the Weatherford, so like uh, four years before this, the Weatherford Best Budget Inn had gone into foreclosure. He had recently had several vehicles repossessed, and he owed the IRS over $66,000. And the IRS wow. had levied his bank account. And so instead of depositing money into his bank account that was levied by the IRS, he would keep large sums of money in cash. And at this time, he had like $23,000 in his trunk on top of the 3000 that was now under his seat. But do you think that was just like, do you think it was in some type of container? Or do you, do you just no, think it, it wasn't because like there's photographs of them. It was like rubber banded. And like the 23000 in his trunk, it was like rubber banded and it had like the, in different stacks. And there was a piece of paper on each stack that like detailed what the money was from there was like handwritten receipts basically on the front of all these stacks of money that were just like wrapped up in rubber bands. Dang. And also that $3,000 is just an estimate. It was estimated by the Reed Smith law firm that the actual number of cash was less than 3,000, something more like 2848, and that will be important later on. Just before 8 o'clock, Barry leaves the Oklahoma City Motel and he heads to the Tulsa Inn location. And Oklahoma City and Tulsa is like an hour and a half away. In our first episode, I was under the impression that this was a three-hour drive. And I don't know why I thought that, because Google Maps mm -hmm. said it's an hour and a half. So Maybe that was round trip. Maybe that's what I was thinking. <laughs> I don't know. On his way, he calls and tells the Tulsa manager that if his wife calls him to tell her that he'll be home in about five and a half hours. But instead of going home, 
he came back to the Oklahoma City Inn and he got in around 2 to 2.15 and he headed straight to room 102. Now, no one knows why he changed his plans or why he said it would take him over five and a half hours to make what should have been a one and a half to three hour (laughs) drive. Yeah, now we'll never know. Right. And the documentary said that no one knows why he would stay in room 102 and that he'd never stayed in that room before. But the motel desk clerk, whose name was Billy Hooper, she testified at trial and she said that that was the nicest room at the motel because it had a stereo and a waterbed. Oh, yes. (laughs) I forgot. I mean, I remember the waterbed, but I forgot that that was the penthouse. Right. That's what made it the nicest room at the motel. I wonder if I could sleep on a waterbed now. My mom had one when I was growing up, but I get motion sick really easy. Yeah, because that was like the epitome of uh, like 90s. (laughs) The motel desk clerk said that Barry always stayed in that room. Barry had apparently used sex workers at the motel a couple of times. They'd been seen leaving his room. This wasn't something like uncommon for him. Now, there's a lot of disputed facts in this case, but what is absolutely not disputed is that sometime in the early morning hours, the maintenance man of the motel, 19-year-old Justin Sneed, made his way into room 102 with a baseball bat and began to beat Barry Van Treese to death with the bat. Do you hear that, people? Undisputed. Undisputed. <laughs> Undisputed. That, that's what happened. At around five in the morning, the manager of the motel, Richard Glossop, was awoken by someone banging on his door. He'd been working as the manager of the motel for about two years, and he lived in an apartment behind the motel with his girlfriend, Deanna. When he opened the door, he saw Justin Sneed, the maintenance man, standing there with scratches on his face and a black eye. And Richard asked him what happened to his face, and he said he kind of dozed off and hit his head on the shower. He said he stopped by to let him know that there were a couple of drunks in room 102 that got loud and out of hand, and they broke the window. Richard told him to clean it up, and first thing in the morning put plexiglass over it until they could get the window repaired. And Richard said he just knew that something was wrong because Justin seemed so rattled, like he couldn't stand still. He couldn't look him in the eye. And then Sneed said, oh, by the way, I killed Barry. Uh, Right. I forgot that he said that part, too. Yeah. Now, Justin was 19 years old. He dropped out of school in the eighth grade. And he now worked with a roofing crew on occasion. And he did handyman repairs at the motel in exchange for a room there. And he had a criminal record that consisted of three convictions, a bomb threat, a burglary, and writing bad checks. And we'll go into that in a little bit. But he also was a very heavy drug user of both meth and cocaine. And Richard said he was just an odd guy, and he told some really crazy stories before. So when he said, oh, yeah, I killed Barry, he didn't really take him seriously. He didn't think Barry was actually dead. He did look out at the in the parking lot right. to see if Barry's car was there, and he didn't see it in its usual parking spot. And so he figured that Barry had left and that Justin was just talking crazy. So the next morning, Justin woke Richard up around 8 or 8.30 so he could use his car to get the plexiglass. And then he and Richard, like, put the plexiglass in on the outside of the window. So Richard helped hold the plexiglass up while Sneed, like, while Justin cocked it on the window outside of room 102 to cover it until it could get repaired. 
I remember thinking this part was like, how could you not realize repairing the window? Like you wouldn't. How could you not look into the window? Well, we when you're thought when it? we when we recorded the first time, we thought that he had replaced the glass in the window. We didn't realize that right. it was just like a piece of plexiglass over the outside. Mm. And then on right. the inside, the blinds of the room were closed. And it would later turn out that there was actually a shower curtain that had been hung up, like covering the window on the inside. So you couldn't see into the room. Okay. Richard went back to sleep for a little while. And then he left early that afternoon to run some errands. He got some new eyeglasses and he got an engagement ring for his girlfriend, which ended up being terrible timing because the police would later use this as evidence that he had used the money from Barry that was in Barry's car. But yeah, the but ring wasn't only, the ring like, yeah, the ring ahead. only cost a hundred dollars. So tell him <laughs> everybody just calm down. The ring was a hundred dollars. At some point on the seventh, people started noticing that Barry was missing. His car was discovered parked in the parking lot of a credit union down the street and the police were called. Uniformed officers came out and they spoke with Cliff Everhart, who said he's a bounty hunter slash security guard at the motel. At one time, he might have been a U.S. Marshal, some places said. But at this point, he was working as Barry's security guard in exchange for like 1% ownership in the motel, according to Cliff. I never have stayed at a hotel or a motel that has a security guard. Have you? I mean, unless it's like super, super nice, like, but. Like, the Holiday Inn Express doesn't have a security guard. Super 8 Motel doesn't. Yeah. It, it, I just it was think that's very, an interesting feature. We'll go into it a little bit. Cliff and his position with the motel and in Barry's life is... Nobody knows. Questionable. What are, what, questionable. Thank you. Like, nobody knows what he's doing questionable there. Questionable at best. Barry is declared a missing person at 310 that afternoon, but police won't search any of the rooms at the motel for another seven hours. And this is because the rooms were already searched. Cliff Everhart, the bounty hunter slash security guard, had told Justin Sneed, the killer, to search all the rooms and make sure that Barry wasn't there. And Everhart told the police that Barry hadn't been in any of the rooms. Obviously, Justin Sneed, the killer, had not searched any of the rooms, and he took off after he saw police starting to arrive, and it would take quite some time for police to catch back up with him. Richard returned to the motel. He'd been running some errands. He returned to the motel sometime between three and four, and he talked with Cliff Everhart, and then he walked over to the credit union because it wasn't far away. It was just right down the street. You could see the credit union from the motel. It was not far. So he walked over there to check out Barry's car that had been parked there and then went and searched for Barry with Cliff Everhart and Deanna, his girlfriend. And finally, mm -hmm. around 10 p.m., Officer Tim Brown and Everhart heard about the broken window in room 102. I have 201 in my notes <laughs> in room 102. And they went to check it out and they had to jimmy the door open. And that's when they discovered Barry's body. So just before 11 o'clock that night, detectives Bob Bemo and Bill Cook arrive on oh, scene. Oh, Bemo. <laughs> yeah, not my favorite. So they spoke to the uniformed officers that told them what had happened, and they told the detectives that the manager of the motel, Richard Glossop, was not to be excluded as a suspect by a long shot because he was acting weird and his stories were inconsistent. 
At this point, the detectives have locked onto Richard Glossop as their number one suspect, and no amount of evidence can persuade them of anything other than he was the mastermind behind this murder. Even when it became incredibly clear that it was actually Justin Sneed who was responsible for the murder of Barry. They also just did a very subpar investigation. They did not canvass the motel for any witnesses other than five witnesses that came to them. Like, they, they weren't found. They were like, hey, I heard something at this time. They didn't try to talk to any of the witnesses at the strip club or talk to any of the drug dealers or sex workers who frequented the motel. Then when they went into room 102, they saw that there was a shower curtain that had been hung up and it, it wasn't hung up. It was duct taped up like there was duct tape all along the side covering that window. <laughs> but here's the thing. The shower curtain didn't come from that room. It did not come from room 102. They checked the bathroom and there was still a shower curtain hanging up in room 102. But they didn't look for this shower curtain. They didn't look to see where that shower curtain came from. Did it match? Was it like the same pattern? And like, yeah, it was like, um, I think it was like a shower. It was there. just a plain white shower curtain. Like it wasn't. So anything. they took it from another room. Yeah. So shouldn't you have figured out which room it came from to see like who has access yeah. to those rooms? That kind of thing. But yeah. they didn't look for the shower curtain. And later, a detective would testify at trial that the shower curtain had come from room 102 when it had not. And he was like, oh, yeah, that's right. It didn't. Like, Seems just, like something you should, like, really make sure of. I mean, <laughs> it's clear that the murderer is the one who hung the shower curtain. It was duct taped up. Barry didn't do that. So you'd think that the shower curtain's a pretty big lead. And Yeah. 19 of the motel rooms were occupied. Some of those rooms had multiple guests staying in one room, yet the detectives only interviewed like five or six of the guests that were staying there. What? I yes. would no, no one's le no checkout until you check in with me, okay? <laughs> exactly. That's just so crazy to me. Like it I, I we hear so many episodes where like it's been a shoddy investigation, but it's just like Especially, like, this crime scene is so contained, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. Like, you could do, like, a good job. You could do a better job than what you've done. Yeah, you could do a good job. But they decided they really didn't want to do anything. I mean, it becomes so clear that they did not want to do anything. They didn't want to do their jobs. <laughs> I mean, can you relate, though? Sometimes you're just like, yeah, no, not I today. Know. I'm like, oh, but not what someone's life is on the line. I'm like, it's probably this guy and he's going to make me do all this extra work and I can just get him to like admit that he did it. So let's just do that. No. Terrible. There's like retail jobs for that. OK, you want to slack off at work? Go do it at Old Navy. All right. Not not on the police. They do. Force. That place is so disorganized. <laughs> The money in Barry's trunk, which totaled about $23,100, was in envelopes with handwritten accounts of the money on the outside of the envelopes. Not all of the envelopes were photographed. Like, they didn't even take a picture of every envelope. And the ones that were photographed didn't actually capture everything that was written on those envelopes. Yeah, that's crazy. Also, some of the money was stained with blue dye which detectives believed that meant that this money came from a robbery because that's a common thing that banks do with money. They put the dye packs in there to, like, trace the money. The money was counted, but the denominations weren't written down, so they didn't even know, like, what, what the denominations were of the, the money. Amount was. 
they knew the total, but not like what denominations right. there were. And it doesn't even look like they ran the serial numbers of the money through the database to see if they came from a robbery or anything. And what I think is the worst thing from this night, maybe from this whole case, is that around 4.30 in the morning, not from this whole case, there, there are many more <laughs> bad things, but from this initial investigation, is that around 4.30 in the morning, Officer Michael O'Leary was told to go to the Sinclair gas station, which is right next to the motel. It's across from the strip club and right next to the motel. And to get the surveillance video from the gas station, because they knew that Justin Sneed had gone to the gas station around three or four in the morning. The clerk at the gas station had told them that. Right. And so he went to go get the surveillance tape, which could have showed, was he with anybody? Like, when exactly did he come in? It could have helped the timeline. So Officer Leary did this. He went and got the evidence, the surveillance tape, and he says he gave it to the homicide office, and then it disappeared. There is no further documentation of this tape. They just don't know where it is. It's... (laughs) (laughs) This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around stressors, big and small. For me, this comes in the form of work, too many deadlines, relationships with people, irrational fears of the future. When we keep them bottled up, it can really start to affect us negatively, mentally and physically. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. My therapist has really been helping me work on coping skills for how to handle my stress, how to handle day-to-day tasks that I struggle with, as well as working on communicating and improving personal relationships and just talking through problems with somebody who understands. It's something I wish I'd started ages ago. But finding a therapist is so overwhelming. Are they taking new patients? Are they taking insurance? And once you find one that says yes to both of those, are they a good fit? If not, you have to start the process all over again. If they are a good fit, you've got to figure out some way to fit appointments into your busy schedule. But BetterHelp takes away all of those barriers, and I'm so thankful. I love my therapist. I really feel like they took my questionnaire that I filled out when I signed up and really used it to match me to the perfect person. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Creepers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Creepers. This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine, but the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pros custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. 
Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. Police oh. knew very early on by like the first day, basically, that Justin Sneed had committed this murder. Witnesses had seen him. They'd found his discarded bloody clothes. They didn't find that on like the first day, but they eventually found like his clothes were completely covered in blood. He'd thrown them somewhere. His DNA and fingerprints were all over the room. But Justin Sneed was nowhere to be found. And so head detective Bob Bemo set his sights on the manager, Richard Glossop, a person with no criminal record apart from some traffic violations and a disorderly conduct charge from when he was 19 that he just paid a fine for. He's 32 (laughs) or 33 at this point. They would also find no physical evidence to connect Richard to the crime or the crime scene. No messages between him and Justin. It wasn't like some like scheme. That they could, like, find, trace back to. Right. But Bima was convinced that Richard was involved because he said he was acting very strange. And he was very suspicious about those inconsistent statements that he'd heard about from Everhart, the bodyguard, and the uniformed officers. So what were these inconsistent statements, you ask? Well, I will tell you. According to the police reports... The inconsistent and the interrogation tapes, the inconsistent statements that he was so bent out of shape over was that BMO says that Richard told Cliff Everhart that he saw Barry at seven in the morning and then told police later that he wasn't sure if he'd seen Barry since 8 p.m. the night before. Well, Richard says he Mm. told all of them that he had seen Barry around 730 the night before. And that this is all just a misunderstanding over a.m. versus p.m. But police say this is a very serious problem. He also had statements from the front desk clerk, Billy Hooper, that said that Richard had told her that he'd seen Barry leave for breakfast. But she said a lot of things that are really problematic. And she just seemed to make some stuff up or remember certain details years later, which we'll get into later. But basically, she would say stuff like four years later at a trial that she had never told police before. She's like, oh, I just remembered that this thing happened. I also feel like sometimes you're just trying to like, when you don't know if you could be implicated, you're like trying to just say whatever to like get attention off of you. You know, like if you're anywhere near this thing. Don't do that, people. Just tell the truth. Right. But I mean, but I could see someone being like, oh, you know, like. But it was Richard. He's on leave for breakfast. Yeah. Maybe, but it's like, if if Richard was the mastermind behind all of this, why would he want to lie and say he'd seen Barry that morning? That would have made him the last person to see Barry. Right. Why would he say that if he's this brilliant criminal mastermind? Why would he intentionally place himself as the last? Obviously, he'd say, yeah, I haven't seen him since last night when he came and paid us all. Like, that's the last time anybody knows <laughs> that he saw him. Like, it's so right. Dark. So anyways, detectives haul Richard in for questioning just after midnight on January 8th. So this is like the day after police were called. Mm -hmm. 
And Detective Bemo tells Richard, quote, we're going to get Justin. And when we tell him, you know, what we've got against him and everything and what's coming down, if he brings your name up in this thing, we come back out. You're going down for first degree murder, buddy. Okay. I have rarely been so frustrated by a person as I was with Detective Bob Bemo. Truly, this guy is a piece of work who is still, to this day, convinced that Richard Glossop was involved with this. He actually said in the still. documentary, I mean, as as recently as the documentary, I haven't talked to him, you know, personally since then, <laughs> but I'm assuming his yeah. opinion probably hasn't changed. And he actually said in this documentary, quote, people that are all standing up for Richard Glossop didn't see what his actions caused to Barry Van Trees. If they only knew the brutality that was involved in this homicide, I wonder if they would still stand up for him. And I'm like, he didn't commit the crime. Like, Justin Sneed was behind the brutality. This is a proven fact that the cops know, backed by forensic DNA, his own admission. So if Richard did what they said they did, that he did, which is tell Justin Sneed to commit this murder, he still wasn't... Like, he didn't do the brutality. Like, the brutality was not on him. It's so frustrating. So, anyways, obviously, BMO has straight tunnel vision. He knew that Justin committed the murder. But for whatever reason, he could not get off of Richard Glossop. BMO says during this first interview that Glossop was very arrogant and cocky. But watching the interrogation tapes, to me, he doesn't come across co cocky. He comes across freaking innocent. BMO says Glossop irritated him with his cocky attitude about how he didn't do it. But literally, if you watch these, all Glossop is doing is saying, look, I didn't do anything. I didn't do this. I'm innocent. And it's just pissing BMO off that he's, quote, you know, lying. And later, Detective BMO oh, yeah. would publicly describe Richard as, quote, such a liar. He wouldn't know the truth if it hit him right between the eyes. I hate this man. He's terrible. So BMO's convinced that Richard is lying, but he can't prove it. So they release Richard and he's put under surveillance. And the next day on January 9th. Does he, sorry, does he ever say what is so convincing him? His inconsistent statements and his odd behavior. Right. But like, that's not so convincing, you know? I mean, I know you know, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your eyes just rolled so far back in your head. They like brushed your neck. I'm certainly not so convinced. It's like, I think that, I think that, you know, you, you have these like images of these like old school detectives or like the really good ones on TV. You know, like if you think about like the best TV detectives, all of them are successful because of their gut, you know, because they just know. Like Kim Possible? That's like immediately when you were like detective. Of the, I, I was like trying to picture one. I was like, Kim Possible? But she's like an, she's not a detective, is she? That's not who you thought of. Name one detective. Go. <laughs> Olivia Benson, Detective Stabler. Everybody from Hawaii Five-0. Everybody from Criminal Minds. <laughs> everybody from like every other police procedural show that I've seen like a million of them. I'm rewatching. Let me tell the you who I got. I got I'm Kim watching Possible The Mentalist and... right now. So the guy no. from The Mentalist, D Jane. <laughs> no, here's who I've got. Kim Possible, uh -huh. Steve from Blue's Clues, and Detective <laughs> what? or what a uh, special agent, what Tim Burke from 
A white collar. <laughs> That's it. And okay, Special Agent Tim Burke, he's got a gut, right? He like goes with his intuition and he's like, like usually he's like playing by the rules like 100%, but then he's yeah. like, I just know it, you know? Neil? I know. And so- like, I trust you, Neil. Yeah, exactly. And so I don't know if BMO is just trying to be like stabler and like go with his gut. Like, I know I'm right and I just have to prove this, but he just was set on him for for no reason that I can see that I have that that an entire team of 35 <laughs> investigators looking into this case <laughs> recently. We'll get into that. Couldn't find a good a good reason for him to be so set on Richard Glossop. So call me, beat me if you want to reach me. Oh, no, we're not doing this. All right. So the <laughs> next day on January 9th, Richard went to see a criminal defense attorney. And right after that meeting, police picked him up and took him back to the police station for his second interview. And this. Oh, do they think that's evidence meeting with an attorney? I'm sure they did. And this time, Richard's story does have one significant change. He tells them the detail about Justin Sneed coming to his door in the morning. Mm -hmm. And saying that he killed Barry. He had not told the police this before. He says that he had intended to tell the police. But then BMO started accusing him of things. It made him really nervous to tell them anything. Like he just completely stopped trusting them. So that day on January 9th, 1997, Richard Glossop was put under arrest for murder one. This is five days before the police managed to track down and speak with Justin Sneed. He's still on the run. Still can't find him. Oh, yeah. Five days before they put him under arrest for first degree murder. The police took custody of $1,757 that they found on Richard and booked it into evidence. And their theory was that this money was like his cut from the money stolen from Barry's car, which was just the money under his seat. The $23,000 in his trunk was untouched. The cash was photographed and the money was sent to the lab for testing. There was never any physical evidence linking this money to the murder. The serial numbers didn't match the money that Sneed had that was connected to the murder. The denominations didn't even match. There was no blood found Mm -hmm. on it, even though Sneed's stack of money was covered in blood. So and obviously they found that later, you know, but they were never able to like actually prove that this money came from Barry's car. So even though he had been arrested and charged with murder one, the district attorney was like, we can't we can't charge him with murder one. There's no evidence. So they could only charge Richard with accessory after the fact because there wasn't any evidence against anything. There's nothing. Meanwhile, Sneed had run back to his roofing crew, so he was gone about a week, and then he was arrested at the new place that he was living on January 14th, 1997, five days after Richard was arrested and charged. What they charge him with? No, Richard was charged. No, I know. Sorry, I thought you said they arrested him and charged. Oh, yeah, murder. Five days One. Later. Yeah, first degree murder. But same thing. Yeah. Okay. During this whole week that he was gone, this like six, seven days, there had been no attempt by police to look for him. They didn't even try to find him. There was no attempt to contact his family to look for him or learn anything about him. They didn't attempt to find his friends or acquaintances. They just didn't really seem particularly concerned about where he might be. 
I have beef with that. <laughs> I'm 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 just like did you just want it on a silver platter just handed to you? And then the fact that they managed to get their way is insane to me. Well, and I like I totally agree. And I get that. And like maybe a couple of years. Okay. But here we are, what'd you say, like 23 years later, and everyone is like screaming how ridiculous. Like we all know these, Mm -hmm. apparently you have all these other detectives that know. Mm -hmm. I know. I mean, I don't know anything about true crime and I'm over here yelling. Like, how is he still, like, even though they got him locked up and they got him charged for this and he's in prison, how is it still like that now in 2022? I know. I know. So no, I want a real answer. I want a real answer. Oh, I got a lot of answers for you. I ha- I know exactly why, mm. and I will tell you. We will get we'll get into his trials. Yeah, I, I'll tell you exactly why. Why is he in this point? Because of Detective Bob Bemo and because of Cliff Everhart. Because of those two is people. Bob Bemo, are they still out there working? No, Bemo's retired. I'm pretty sure he's been retired. Um, Cliff Everhart is dead i think i think i'm not no maybe he's in jail i don't know justin is brought in for an interrogation justin sneed and it it should be criminal the way that this interrogation was run one of the first things that he asks that justin sneed asks is what's the punishment for first degree murder and they tell him that he's facing the death penalty and he's like that's what i was afraid of Everyone oh, yeah. knows he committed this murder. He's, his DNA is all over the crime scene. Like, evidence upon evidence stacked against him. Like, he did this. It's obvious. So the only thing that Justin can hope for at this point is a lighter sentence. It's not like he's walking away from this. Right. And, There's no denying that it was him. Right. And Bimo tells him exactly how he can do that. He said, quote, the best thing you can do for yourself is tell us who all was involved. So they're literally telling him that there's going to be a benefit to him if he says that someone else was involved, if he tells them who's involved. Well, maybe there was somebody else involved. Maybe he doesn't want to say who it was. So then BMO tells him, you know, they've made you the scapegoat in this. You know, yeah, the scapegoat, uh, the one with the DNA all over the place and the fingerprints all over the place and the one that actually beat him in with a baseball gap. But yeah, but he's a scapegoat. Anyways. They've made you the scapegoat in this. You know, everyone is saying that you're the one that did this and you did it by yourself. And I don't believe that. He said, you know, Rich is under arrest, don't you? And Justin said, no, I didn't know that. And BMO's like, yeah, he's under arrest too. And Justin was like, okay. And BMO's like, so he's the one who's putting it on you the worst. This is all within the first 20 minutes of the interrogation. Justin Sneed had not brought up Richard Glossop's name at all until BMO gave it to him. In fact, in the first 20 minutes of the interrogation, the first 20 minutes, Richard Glossop's name was brought up by detectives six times. Is this on, is this yes. on recording? Yes. This is all recorded. The first time was when BMO told him that Richard was arrested. You know, we got Richard arrested for this, too. Hey, why don't you tell me who else was involved? And also, by the way, you know, we got Rich arrested. So why don't you just go ahead and tell me that it was him? It's basically the end of that sentence. Hey, you'd be a very convincing detective with all your fingernail pointing over there with your Lizzo nails. I do have my Lizzo nails. (laughs) 
They're claws. I got some claws on. Okay, so the first time was when BMO told him that Richard was arrested, and then five additional times saying things like, quote, and now Rich is trying to save himself by saying that you're in this by yourself, and that it was all you're doing, and you're the one that did the homicide. Neither of the detectives in this interrogation bring up any other person besides Richard Glossop until after Sneed confesses. They also never simply just ask him to describe what happened to see if he'll implicate other people that could have been involved. Like, this is absolutely police contamination, and it should be criminal. A hundred percent. This is ridiculous. I think it is, right? <laughs> no. It should be. Yes. Well, it, yes, it absolutely should be. At this point, they've given him all of the information that he needs to pin it back on Richard. And this is the thing that I hate. It's the same thing as in the Scott Peterson case, because when you give people more information than they should have, you completely contaminate the entire case. So now, if you're right, if Richard Glossop did order this hit, well, you've just made it to where we can't prove it. You can't prove it. Because anything Justin Sneed says after this, we can't take seriously. Because they've already told him who to say. You know what I mean? Same uh, with Scott Peterson. Yeah, yeah. When they're out there announcing where his alibi saying where was, he saying where he, yeah, yeah, saying exactly where he was. So when the body turns up there, it's like, okay, well, there's a, a reason for that. There's an explanation for that that wouldn't be there if you just kept your mouth shut and kept that information to yourself. I feel like I, uh, okay, Justin Sneed is like a terrible dude, but I almost yeah. feel like you can't blame him for then also, like, if he knows he's going to get a lighter sentence and they're basically saying, like, we know Rich was involved. I don't I don't know. I don't really blame him for being like, yeah, like I 100 percent blame him for being a lying liar who testified at trials and did all of this stuff to put a man but that's on like, death he's row. He's the only one that's done that. He's never. He's yeah, the only I one that's done that. that though, but that would cases. be like saying, I don't blame Jay Wilde for. Well, we know you do, but I'm trying to think of some case that's not these of someone two. that lied. On the stand and cause somebody else to waste decades of their life? No, I will always blame that person. Okay. But. Fair. Yeah, obviously he's going to take the out. Like <laughs> You gave him an out. He's going to take it. Yeah. It doesn't surprise me that he did that. Yeah, I mean, what? Wh why wouldn't he at this point? He has nothing to lose. Well, he he has. Uh, th yes, he has things to gain. And right. So that's what I mean. at this by, point, they've given it. him all of the information he needs to pin it back on Richard. So they ask Justin Sneed if it was all his idea. And shocker, he says, no, no, this wasn't my idea. He says that Richard said that he would split any money they could get out of Barry. It was pretty common knowledge that he had money on him, that he carried around large amounts of cash. I mean, there was nothing that Justin was telling the police that they didn't already think. There's no new information that would prove that he was telling the truth. It was just all confirming the theory they already had. Would Justin Sneed have given the police Richard's name if the police hadn't given it to him? Hadn't told him that that's who they wanted him to name? Well, we we will, don't know. We will never know that because the cops never gave him the chance. They did it for him. All right. So let's talk corroborating evidence. You're not supposed to be able to be convicted on the word of an accomplice alone 
for obvious reasons, because anybody could just say, yeah, he did it. Because they're not the most trustworthy people. There should be other evidence corroborating that. So Sneed tells the police that they stole $4,000 out of Barry's car, the money that was under the seat that he had just gotten from Richard. Sneed says that he and Richard split the money, giving them each about $2,000 apiece. They found about that amount on Sneed, covered in blood. They found like a little less than $1,700. He'd cut his hand in the attack on Barry, and he was bleeding all over it while he handled the money, probably because he broke the window in the room, you know, on the glass. So he's bleeding all over the money as he handles the money. Richard had about $1,700 in cash on him. So the police say that that $1,700 was the other half of the cut. That was Barry's money, the other half of the $4,000. They had about the same amount. They each had about the same amount. Richard's money had no blood on it to connect it to the money that Sneed had that was covered in blood. So it's not great corroborating evidence. And apart from people testifying that he was acting weird that day, that's all they had on him. Literally, I've given you all the evidence. Where did he get that money from, though? So we'll go into it later. Richard says that the money came from, and this is the real irony of the whole thing, that the money came from him selling off his possessions to pay for a defense attorney. But like, did he have the money before he, when did they find the money? After. Yeah. Okay. Like after he was arrested and they could like serve a search warrant, you know, he'd, he'd started going to the defense attorney on the right. 9th. He started putting stuff up on like, now, I've wondered, I was going to say he started putting stuff up on Facebook Marketplace, but this was 1997, so that didn't happen. <laughs> uh, at a yard sale. Yeah. I was like, I wonder if they ever found any posts of him. No, of course not. It was 1997. So it's taking that, like, to a pawn shop, you know? Yeah, but then you'd have receipts, so I'm not really sure. I don't think he took it to a pawn shop. I think he probably, yeah, just sold it, like... In the green sheet or whatever, you know. In the, on the motel black market. Yeah, whatever you did to sell your stuff back then. So, it's cha- you know what? I kind of want to talk about this money here a little bit more. So, Justin Sneed said they stole $4,000. He kind of got that number from police, but whatever. The I mentioned before, the law firm that has gone through, you know, dozens of investigators into this case, and they estimate, obviously, we don't know the real actual amount because the money was stolen, but they estimate mm-hmm. that it was far less than that, that it was more like $2,800. So if they both had $1,700, that's not half of 28. Not to mention, Justin Sneed is a very heavy drug user. You're going to tell me that he had $2,000 in cash on him for a week and all he spent was $300? No, I can't even do that. And I don't use drugs. (laughs) Exactly. The police never accounted for his whereabouts after the murder. Those five days where they didn't know where he was. They never accounted for his whereabouts. They never asked him. They if, never, like, no. got back. They have no idea where no. he was for those five days. They never asked him if he used or purchased drugs during that time. He was never even drug tested. And the money was found just stuffed in a drawer in a shared living space that other people had access to. So there could have been a lot more 
like a thousand dollars or so more, you know, before uh-huh. they found him. Richard said his $1,700 came from him selling off his possessions in order to afford a defense attorney. So I find it so ironic that the most compelling evidence against him only exists because he was targeted in this investigation. He wouldn't have even had yeah. that cash, according to, you know, what he because, says. Yeah. Seems using it. So let's look at Sneed's story once he gets it all worked out, because mind you, it has changed a few times. Sneed had moved to Oklahoma, where he he actually had been living in Texas before. I'm not sure if that's where he grew up, but he'd come from Texas. He'd moved to Oklahoma, where he'd been working for a roofing company for about three to four months. And they'd stay in various motels, including the Oklahoma City Best Budget Inn. And he and another friend of his had convinced Richard to let them do maintenance work on the motel in exchange for a free room there. And after a while, Justin quit the roofing crew and he started just working solely at the motel. And working should be like in quotation marks. Like (laughs) he wasn't. Later in an interview, Sneed said that there was a ready supply of drugs and girls at the motel, and that was the only reason that he was probably still staying there. He'd only been working at the motel three months when he says that Richard Glossop started asking him to kill Barry Van Treese. He says that Richard wanted to be able to manipulate Barry's wife into giving him the motels, and he'd let Sneed run one of them. Uh, Justin Sneed admitted to being stoned the majority of the time that he was at that motel. He gives three different accounts of how Richard Glossop told him the night of January 6th, 1997, to do it, to go through with the murder. Today, Justin Sneed said that he was asleep when Glossop came into his room. Sometimes he said he used a master key to enter. Sometimes he says that he was banging on the door until he until Justin answered the door. Sometimes he says that Richard called him on the phone. Either way, he says Richard came to his room while he was asleep and told him that Barry Van Treese had just showed up at the motel and that he was willing to up the money to $7,500, which is also weird considering the whole plan was to steal the money out of the car and then split it. But now it's he's just going to pay him $7,500 for the murder. And Sneed says that he was like, no, I don't want to do it. Like, I don't, I don't, this isn't me, you know? And Richard was like, do it. And he was like being really aggressive. (laughs) And let's remind ourselves that, do it, that uh, Justin Sneed is the one with the violent acts on his arrest record. The one with like clear, like violence in his past. And Richard Glossop is the one with no record. At trial, Sneed was painted as this helpless dupe who was manipulated by Richard, and Richard is painted as this criminal mastermind who wanted to take over the motel. They act like this is like the the plaza, New York. Right, like like Barry Van Treese wasn't hemorrhaging money in these motels. Like he hadn't just had one foreclosed on. Like they didn't have only 19 rooms booked, and it was probably by the hour. Justin Sneed still today insists that he is telling the truth. But his story sounds so unbelievable. He says that he really thought that by telling the police this story, which he insists is the truth, that the police would just allow him to go home. Like, that's what he truly believed, that if I tell them this, then I'm going to get to go home. And so that's why he said it. Justin Sneed made up a story using information given to him by the police to help himself out of a death penalty sentence. 
So he thought he could go home. (laughs) He thought he could go home. And this is common with false confessions. Like they're led to believe that if they just tell the police what they want to hear, they can go home. And sometimes it happens, not in this case, Justin Sneed is a class act, obviously. But in a lot of cases where somebody actually is innocent, they believe that, okay, I'll just say that I did it. They'll let me go home. I'll get a lawyer and Mm -hmm. prove that I didn't do it because the system works. And they'll see that I'm innocent. And I can't go to jail for something I didn't do. Like, that's what, unfortunately, like, and that's how it should be. (laughs) But they don't realize that. That's what happens to so many people. They don't realize that your actual guilt doesn't even really matter. And at a certain point, it doesn't matter at all Mm. in the law. Dang, man, that just was like a truth truth bomb dropped. Yeah. Your innocence doesn't even matter. No, it doesn't. Many of Bimo's cases have been reviewed and many of his convictions have been overturned. Shocker. Bimo says in the documentary that he's <laughs> never put anyone in jail that didn't belong there. And I'm like, dude, you had convictions overturned. You have put people in jail that did not belong jail there. Absolutely do God. not belong there. <laughs> Many <laughs> investigative avenues that the te- that the detectives could have gone down, but Bimo and his partner Cook were convinced they had their guy, and they didn't do anything more than that. I mean, they didn't even call Justin Sneed's family to look for him. He said a few other things that were just so annoying. I was like yelling at him through the TV. One was that Justin wasn't smart enough to plan something like this, and I'm like, something like what? Like breaking into someone's room and beating them with a bat and then stealing money out of their car. Like there's no intelligence to this. This isn't Ocean's Eleven. There's Yeah, this isn't exactly an (laughs) intricate heist. (laughs) Right. I'm like, what? Like idiots do that stuff every day. Beating somebody over the head with a baseball bat is not like a smart thing. This was something that Justin did. He'd done it several times before. He would break into rooms and he would steal. He'd use his girlfriend to lure men into the showers of their room. And then he'd sneak in and steal money from these men. He told people in prison that he would do this. There's witnesses that say that he did this. He's also had several recorded incidents of violence. And he was a major heavy meth addict. Yeah. He never, so when they would be in the shower and he would steal the money, mm-hmm. he never injured anyone those times? Uh, kill, no, he, he, would anybody. Get, he would be in and out. He'd so. never killed anybody before, okay. but he'd okay. been violent before. Right. Yeah. Another thing is that Bimo says that he doesn't know if Justin intended to kill Barry. And I'm like, how could Richard Glossop uh, have hired him to, to murder him if he's not sure that Justin actually intended to murder him? Like, I just can't. Yeah, this isn't like a choose your own adventure hit man situation. I just, he makes me so mad. Bimo actually said that he felt sorry for Justin. Oh, does he? Remember that quote from before when he's like, I wonder if people standing up for Richard Glossop would feel the same if they saw the brutality his actions had caused. But the guy who actually caused the brutality, you feel sorry for him. The guy that beat him to death so bad. It's infuriating. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, they they say that he has this control over Sneed. 
And Richard's like, I could barely get him to do his actual job around the motel. Like, he (laughs) would disappear for days at a time and then just show up again. So where's this control? Right. So that's all they had on Richard. A murderer saying that Richard hired him after the police implicated him by name. $1,700 that they found that may or may not have come from Barry's car. There's really no way to tell and no proof that it did. And of an inconsistent statement to police and weird behavior. And like, that's it. No one can put Richard in the room. There's no DNA, nothing. But there's DNA for Sneed all over the room. On January 23rd, 1997, both Justin Sneed and Richard Glossop were charged with first degree murder. In order to avoid the death penalty, Justin Sneed entered into a plea agreement where he pled guilty to first-degree murder and agreed to testify against Richard Glossop. So Richard's first trial comes up, and it is a complete shit show. I mean, just complete disaster. His defense attorney, Wayne Fornerat, he had never defended a homicide before, much less a capital crime. Even today, he knows he did a completely crap job. And I mean, I feel for the guy (laughs) to an extent. But he really did an absolutely just terrible job of defending this case. Absolutely, his worst mistake was not getting Justin Sneed's interrogation tapes into evidence. That was the biggest thing against him. Yeah. That was really the only evidence against him was that Justin Sneed said, he's the guy that told me to do it. He did not get those interrogation tapes into evidence. So the jury never saw The police lead Justin to implicate Richard. I mean, he should have gone frame by frame through that tape, and he didn't do anything with it. And explained, like, here's where. Yeah. Or, yes, or, like, had the police on there. Okay, let's watch this next clip. Why did you just tell him Richard Glossop's name? Tell me. You don't think that that. Right. (laughs) I don't know how I'd do it. I'm not a lawyer, but he should have. I could have at least figured out that. Look, if people are rolling full-ass mattresses in, or we're taking juries out to a cliff, or we're watching the Martha Stewart baking thing on the TV, like... Right, you're not going to put in the interrogation tape? By day two of the six-day trial, Wayne Fornerat wanted Richard to just take a blind plea, meaning that they would plead guilty and the judge could just give him whatever sentence the judge wanted to. Richard was like, what are you talking about? That sounds like a terrible idea. And so they did not do that. Prosecutors alleged in this first trial, using financial records and witness testimony, that Richard was embezzling money by renting out rooms off the books. And the state claims that there was like $6,000 missing from the inn. But guess what? There's no evidence that proves this. It's like they just made it up. They don't have like any sort of like system or records book or anything to say that they're $6,000 short. Yeah, like shoddy records. Right. The state claims that Barry was becoming suspicious of the missing money. And so Richard planned to kill Barry, but that he was going to hire Justin Sneed, the 19-year-old maintenance man, to do the job for him. And he would give him the money in Barry Ventrice's car if he did. Justin Sneed also testified that Richard believed that by killing Barry, He could convince Barry's wife to let him take over the Best Budget Inn and maybe even the one in Tulsa, too. 
I mean, at this point, this just sounds like Justin Sneeds and making up random stuff. Yeah, he thought he could get Everything. in charge of the inn. And the state portrayed Richard as this criminal mastermind and Justin Sneed as his puppet, easily manipulated into a weapon for Richard. That's rude. Yeah. Yeah. Even more rude. They basically said he was <laughs> incapable of significant independent action and was easily drawn okay. into Richard's plot to kill Barry. But listen to this. Okay, the, the jury never heard evidence that proves what an absolute piece of garbage Justin Sneed has been for his entire life. He had been kicked out of school in the eighth grade for fighting students and teachers. In school, he was described uh, by fellow classmates as manipulative and as a bully. He used to break into homes and steal anything that wasn't bolted down. The jury also never okay. heard all about his criminal history, including burglary and writing bad checks. He also once coerced his girlfriend into making a bomb threat at her school. None of this <gasps> sounds like a weak-minded person who is incapable of making their own choices. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. He also, like I've said multiple times, massively heavy drug user. He used meth every single day, but also cocaine, crank, and acid. Ugh. And marijuana. What's crank? Should I know what that Look, is? Look, I knew you were going to ask me that. Uh, did you Google it then? No, I didn't. It's a drug. It's okay? fine. It's like we don't all need the to educate drugs. the people. It messes with the chemicals in your brain. It makes you feel good and then makes you feel terrible. All right? Like all yeah, the rest don't of them. do it. <laughs> he would crank. often... So he would often get these drugs for free from these two older men at the motel. So he wasn't relying on Richard to supply him with drugs. Like, you'd think he's, like, massively addicted to drugs. If you're going to manipulate him and, and turn him into your puppet, wouldn't it be through the drugs? Wouldn't that be how you do that? Yeah. But Justin had his steady supply of drugs. He managed to figure out how to get free drugs. So, again, I think he's capable of, like, independent action. Yeah, I mean, his record shows that. There's just nothing that shows that he had any sort of control over Justin at all. He said he could barely get him to show up to work most days. But again, the jury didn't hear all of that. Instead, they're shown this person on the stand that appears very nonviolent and meek. And they're told that he was under Richard's control. The most compelling corroborative evidence they had, the only corroborating evidence they had was that $1,700 that they found in Richard's possession. Yeah, that's not doing a whole lot for me either. Okay, now um, our resident bounty hunter slash security guard, Cliff Everhart. <laughs> yeah, a lot of questions there. Uh-huh. He testified that he planned to meet Barry at the motel on January 6th, 1997, the day of the murder to confront Richard about this money missing from the motel, this $6,000 that was supposedly missing. This is what he said at trial. But here's the interesting part. You know how Cliff Everhart was all buddy-buddy with police on day one of the investigation and like yes. pointing the finger at Richard and being like, he told me that he saw Barry this morning, whatever. He never once told police that he was planning to confront Richard with Barry about this $6,000 that was missing. He didn't tell that to police the whole day. While he's pointing the finger at Richard, he never says, by the way, we mm. think he's embezzling money. We were going to confront him about it. He was about to get fired. Like, never says anything about this. Or at least there's nothing in the police reports about this. 
And Cliff Everhart was a former like cop. He was a former investigator. Like he would know this is what detectives need to know right now. And before this, Richard had gotten a bonus almost every single month from Barry for his for doing good work at the motel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The state relied pretty heavily on Everhart's testimony to support its theory of the motive that Richard was embezzling. He was about to be fired. And so he had Sneed kill Barry. But what was not presented at trial was all the information that could have been used to impeach Everhart as a witness meaning it could have been used to show that he was not a credible witness. First Mm -hmm. off, Everhart's role at the motel is very unclear. He said he worked security in exchange for a small stake in ownership of the motels. But everyone else said he was just a friend of Barry's who used to be like a police chief and then an investigator and then Maybe he's just US like hanging Marshall. around, you know, yeah. yeah, he's just he's just hanging around with his pals. Right. There's also never been anything to prove that he had any sort of ownership in the motels. Barry's wife, Donna, didn't seem to know anything about this ownership. Well, during his time as an investigator, he would investigate defenses for people charged with capital murder. And in a performance review... Uh- It was stated that he exhibits character deficiencies, including, quote, very limited honesty and integrity, unquote. Wait, who does the performance review? His boss at the police. Okay. It also stated that he rarely, if ever, seems to learn from his mistakes and instead has a strong tendency to assume he's right and stubbornly refuses to adjust his behavior. I mean, these are just direct quotes from his performance review. It ended saying, quote, as most every supervisor in this agency who has dealt with Cliff Everhart agrees, his performance is unsatisfactory. Man, that is not what you want. Let me tell you, I'm, you're applying for a new job. I don't think I've ever heard of a performance review that bad. At the time of the that second correct. trial, which, you know, we're not there yet, but. There were also some serious charges against Everhart that would go to his credibility as a witness. Things like willful neglect of duty, a police officer making a false writing, and a felony charge for officer gambling. And after the second trial, he entered guilty pleas and served time in prison. None of this was ever brought to a jury, but he was allowed to testify and say that yeah, Richard was about to get fired and I was meeting up with Barry that day to confront him about it, even though I forgot to tell the police the day of the murder. And I'm just now remembering like a year later during this trial. (laughs) Very convenient. (laughs) Very convenient. The prosecutor in this case was Bob Macy, nicknamed Cowboy, and he's awful. Ugh. Single fine cowboy? (sighs) No. A Harvard study said that Macy sent more people to death row than any other individual district attorney in the United States. He's actually bragged about how many people he has had sent to death, which is so gross. That number is 54, by the way. He is one of the nation's most outspoken advocates for the death penalty after the Oklahoma City bombing. And, you know, we went in our first, you know... Our first go of this, we went into all the reasons why I am against the death penalty. So we're going to go into them again here now. Oh, good. Well, hey, now I can firmly say that I am too, because I was un- 
un- n- I was undecided. non-committal on the yeah. first. Yeah. I think that there are a lot of misconceptions about the death penalty. And I think that people that usually support the death penalty, they usually have a few reasons why they do. And mostly I think it comes down to their belief that it deters crime or else they just want to get revenge. They say this person. Like an eye for an eye. Yeah, yeah. This person deserves it. They should get it. So let's look at the first reason that it deters crime. Many studies have been done looking at the correlation between death penalties and violent crime, and they show that there isn't any. There's just not a correlation there. Prison isn't even really a deterrent to crime, and the death penalty is definitely not a reason that you don't commit murder. Nobody's like, oh, I totally go kill that guy, except I don't want the death penalty because I'm in Texas or whatever. And also, murder rates are not higher in states that don't have the death penalty. I didn't look in the stats, but I'm pretty sure they're the opposite. People also think it's cheaper to kill people than to continue to feed and house them for the rest of their lives. Like, just kill them and then we don't have to take care of them and that's expensive. But actually, because of all the appeals granted in capital crimes, it's actually more expensive to execute somebody than to just let them rot. I think that's the part I was most un... Like, Mm -hmm. as soon as you said it, I was like, oh, of course. But Mm -hmm. that was the part I was least familiar with. Yeah, but the main reason that I am against the death penalty is because of the chances of executing an innocent person, which are not zero. It is not zero. They're not even close, right? No. Really? Since 1973, there have been 144 exonerations of death row inmates. And do you know how hard it is to get exonerated? It's so hard. hard. It's innocent until proven guilty. But once you have a guilty verdict, it's almost impossible to prove you're innocent. It doesn't even matter if you're innocent once you're found guilty. You are guilty in the eyes of the law. The burden of proof of innocence is insanely high. And a lot of the times you have to prove like who really did it to prove that you didn't or you or it takes DNA evidence to prove it wasn't you. This can be really hard, especially in Richard Glossop's case, because we all know he didn't do the actual murder. That's not even what he's being accused of. No one. Yeah, we're not questioning. No, no one's claiming that he did it. So he has to prove that he never had a conversation with Justin Sneed that Sneed says that they had. How do you prove you didn't have that conversation? Especially when there's like no evidence that they had it. So at this first trial, Richard is convicted based on this theory that Richard was embezzling money from the motel and he was sentenced to death. But when the case went to appeals, amazingly. All five judges unanimously agreed to throw out the conviction and Mm. Richard got a new trial. This almost never happens. Like there has to be some major screw ups. And it basically all came down to ineffective assistance of counsel for not using Justin Sneed's interrogation video, not showing that to the jury. So Richard Glossop gets a second chance and it starts out looking really good. He gets a new attorney uh, named Lynn, Lynn Birch who decides to actually do his job and investigate the case. He interviews witnesses that were never interviewed by police. He has his PI investigate Everhart, who's super shady. Oh, yeah. And who had also been pretty damning with his testimony in the first trial. But they found witnesses that were saying that he was involved with drugs and prostitution and that he'd been seen with Justin Sneed before the murder. When the lawyer's PI went to investigate those claims at the motel, Everhart tried to intervene and stop the investigation. So, very suspicious. 
But a few days before the second trial was supposed to start, which was scheduled for like 2003, so we're talking about six years after his conviction, a few days before that trial was supposed to start, his new attorney was accused by the DA of threatening Justin Sneed and removed from the case. Mm. Richard was assigned two new attorneys who had just six months to prepare a defense. I know that's not new information to me, but I it feels like new information to me. I just remembered. I know. Oh. And that's not even the worst part. So it turns out Bob Macy, the prosecutor in love with the death penalty, is not only a horrible person, but an actual criminal. In 2001, the FBI investigated him and his forensic analyst, Joyce Gilchrist. For years, she had been giving amazing testimony on blood, hair, semen, and fabrics that really swayed juries. And she assisted Macy on getting death penalty convictions on 23 people and convict thousands of others. But it turns out that she had tampered with and falsified evidence in numerous cases. This is the forensic analyst tampered with That's... and falsified evidence in numerous cases. But why? To help him win. To help but him get why? these convictions. Because winning is all that matters to some of these people. People got no morals. Couldn't be me. Could not be me. Could not be me. Neither Bob nor Joyce were prosecuted, but several of their cases started being reviewed. And some were overturned. In fact, most of the cases that they reviewed were overturned. Joyce Gilchrist was in charge of Richard Glossop's evidence. So it's very interesting that in 1999, a box of, which is after the first trial and before the second, right. a box of evidence in his case that included deposit books and receipt books that could have proved that there were never any shortages at the motel was destroyed by police. They claimed the case was closed and that's why they destroyed it. But in 1999, Glossop was two years away from his appeal. And with death penalty cases, you get like a million appeals. So it's just wrong. This box was destroyed before his second trial. And it was under Joyce Gilchrist's watch that this box was destroyed. The new investigation into this case confirmed that this box was specifically requested to be destroyed by the Oklahoma <gasps> County. By who? By the Oklahoma County District Attorney's Office. Oh. This was in violation of a longstanding agreement in place since the 1990s between the police department and the district attorney's office that evidence in a capital murder case is never to be destroyed. They destroyed it two years after the murder, like one year after the trial, like right after the trial. Like appeals are still like very much going on. I mean, they'll be going on for you years. You get a million of them like forever two and years. ever. Yeah, I don't understand that. The investigation also found that the destruction of this evidence appeared to be deliberate and not a mere accident. And again, this was evidence that could have proved that he was not skimming from the motel or could have proved that he was. So why are they destroying that? You right. know? He finally gets his second trial in 2004 with these, you know, assigned new attorneys that just had six months to prepare his defense. And it goes just as badly as his first trial. These new defense attorneys didn't point out all the changes to Justin Sneed's story, including how he even changed the story of the murder 
First, he said he killed uh-huh. Barry with a baseball bat, then with a knife. And then way later, he said that Richard gave him a hammer and told him to do it right now. Yeah. They also did not call any expert witnesses, and they barely cross-examined Sneed. And during their cross that they did do, they just made him look more credible, which honestly is hard to do. Uh, What? Yeah, I've watched several interviews with this guy. He just makes no sense ever, so I don't know how they did that. But the state had a good story. (laughs) They had a motive that they just made up with no evidence to back it up, except for Cliff Everhart's testimony. And like I said, they made Gloss about to be this manipulative psychopath who wanted to take control of the motels. Which, like, is just such a stretch to me. I know. Me too. But if the state has a good enough story and they've destroyed any evidence that could contradict the story, and then they make sure that the jury doesn't hear other certain information, it's easier to get the jury to buy it. And once again, he was convicted and sentenced to death. At this time, jumping ahead to current day 2022, October 2022, Richard Glossop has been scheduled for execution four times. The most recent was this past September. The execution in September, he got a stay due to this new investigation. The one in, he, ha- he was scheduled for execution in 2015, and he got a last minute stay due to an issue with the lethal injection after the state had botched two executions. And so they decided to halt all further executions until they got that all figured out. But they got it figured out a couple of years ago in 2020. They're back to killing people. Richard Glossop has had three last meals, three nights in prison Ugh. that he thought Every would be his last. Every time you say that. I know. Every time. He has spent 52 days on death row where cells are lit 24-7, cameras and guards are on you 24-7. Meanwhile... Justin Sneed is living it up in a medium security prison where he says the biscuits are fantastic. (laughs) I forgot (laughs) the biscuits. I'd love to try one, but I'm not willing to go to prison that. Well, you know, he says he doesn't even But if I could get one to go. Right. And and he says he doesn't even think he deserves to be there because he was honest. Mogab. And he says it's just teaching kids that there's no reward for being truthful. And I'm like, how, no reward. Uh, how about being in a medium security prison and not on death row like Richard Yeah, Glossop. you still killed somebody. You still killed somebody. Both. I feel like uh, that's the exact thing I said last time, but I feel it even yeah. just the same. Both of Richard Glossop's parents have died since he's been in prison, and he has two kids that don't want anything to do with mm. him anymore. They just don't have a relationship. So, like I said earlier, there was an independent reinvestigation of Richard Glossop's case by the law firm of Reed Smith LLP at the request of a committee of 34 Oklahoma state legislators. So, these 34 legislators, I think like 28 of which are Republican, got together and put forth this request to reinvestigate this case. And... The law firm that had Reed Smith, they had no prior knowledge of this case, no prior involvement with this case. They were hired to reinvestigate. They brought on like this law firm. They had like dozens of investigators on this case, like 30, 40 investigators here. Their findings are almost 350 pages long. And yeah, I did skim it all. And it's linked in our sources. And a lot of it was just confirming what we already knew. You know, the police contamination and the interrogation, the destruction of that box of evidence, 
chain of custody issues with collection of evidence. There are so many issues with this case. Honestly, it was overwhelming to go through it all. And we're really only touching the surface here. I mean, this document, this 350-page document is very thorough. It goes through every single thing that was wrong with the investigation, with the trials, and it includes like the new information they found, like the stuff about Cliff Everhart, the stuff about Justin Sneed's background. They got new witnesses that are testifying to things like Justin Sneed has been bragging about committing this crime with his girlfriend, and it was him and his girlfriend that did it. And there's a lot of like shady stuff about this girlfriend. And she was quoted as saying, like, I'm not going down for this murder. And like, that's one theory that she was the accomplice. But I don't think he needed an accomplice. I mean, this was a one man job. He didn't need. There was a real method. No, he didn't need Richard Glossop to order him to kill Barry. He was robbing people. Without yeah, that, I don't I don't know a- why he yeah. So anyways, that is the case against Richard Glossop. And that is all I have for you today. But I, you know Well, I hated it the first time and I hated it the second time. <laughs> I know. It's so terrible. You, it's I so do. terrible. I I just look at this and I'm like, this is such a clown show. Like, how clown did he get <laughs> It is. This is a clown <laughs> show, everybody. I, that's it. That's going to be on a sticker somewhere. Welcome to the clown show. <laughs> Welcome to the clown show Truly. where it's like, how did this happen? You just look. There are a lot of wrongful convictions where it's like wrong place, wrong time. Things look really bad. I can kind of see like, you know, it's not obvious or but this is just like how that's just this happened. And it's just putting people up on the stand like Cliff Everhart and let him lie about this meeting, about firing Richard, but have nothing to back it up. Like his. Ugh, back, anyways. Back, back it up. Well, that's all I have for you guys today. This but a shout out to you because <laughs> that episode and hearing it twice. I mean, it's like so, it was so weird, like hearing it. Mm-hmm. There's definitely parts I don't remember. And then obviously, you know, new information we didn't know. But that really took me back to October 2020. And the fact that you've had me here and this uncomfortable <laughs> chair every week for two years that really says something about you. Yeah, it really says something about you as well, that you keep coming. Yeah. Back. <laughs> Welcome to this clown show. <laughs> Truly. Well, I will fun. continue to keep everybody updated on what's happening in Richard Glossop's case. Things are looking up. He has, you know, bipartisan support from Oklahoma legislators like on his side. That's definitely a good thing. This new investigation that shows like all of these problems with the investigation. This is an official report, like legally speaking. Anyways, from here, to me, it looks like it's just a matter of time before he's walking out those doors like Adnan, but... Oh, come on. Fingers crossed. Keep your fingers crossed. I certainly can't see them executing him at this point with all of this information available. I cannot see not them. with Not with me and you on the case. 
it's yeah we'll we be did a- it. hollering to high heaven okay thank you thank you thank you so much for listening thank you for a hundred episodes also yeah but mocap's really wow. got a pee so Y'all follow us on pee. socials cre- at creepers pod <laughs> just put my business out there <laughs> it's true though. and um yeah and go check out the patreon and be sure to subscribe or follow True Crime Creeper so that you will be you will know exactly when our next episode drops when Oswald Mogab another wild story. Bye, peeps and creeps. <laughs>